0: Hey everyone, welcome back to Movie Morning and Chapter 19 of The Mandalorian, Season 3, Episode 3, titled The Convert, released on Disney Plus a few days ago. Now, I am a few days late because I was feeling pretty sick a couple of days ago, and I'm still not feeling the best, but I wanted to talk about this episode in some way, shape, or form before we move on to next episode, which comes out next week. Now, I'm going to be honest, I really don't have that much to say about this episode, and I understand I say this for, like, half these episodes, and then I end up going on for, like, 20 minutes, but I really don't have a lot to say about this one. I think my thoughts are pretty clear, and I'm gonna get through that quickly, and then I'll go through my breakdown of a few things I noticed. But honestly, when it comes to this episode, I don't have very many strong feelings. Well, actually, I do have one particular strong feeling. So when it comes to The Mandalorian Season 3 so far, I reviewed last week's episode. I quite enjoyed that one. I wasn't the biggest fan of the first episode, but I quite enjoyed last week's episode. But when it comes to this episode... Unfortunately, it felt like with this episode, they tried to take a few cues from Andor, which would be a good thing. I don't know why I said it, unfortunately. But without the level of quality that that show was made to, it felt like with this episode of The Mandalorian titled The Convert, they tried to take some things from that show, like how it would cut away the side characters and tell this very thematically rich story about that side character that were also tied directly into the creation of the world, the world building and creating intensity so that it could eventually crescendo with the main plot line. This episode tries to do something similar, at least it thinks it is, but in the end I thought it kind of just went nowhere, and I understand I'm I'm not in the popular opinion, but I also think the way it was executed was really underwhelming. So let's get into breaking this episode down, full spoilers, I'll get into it once I get into it. But I thought the acting through a lot of the episode, a lot of the dialogue and a lot of the writing, I was not digging it. And we'll get to that in just a second. But let's start off with the more positive stuff, and that is how this episode starts. Now, it starts right where the last episode ended. Mando uh, w- wakes up, and bo asks him whether he recalls any living creatures, a.k.a. the Mythosaur, when he was down below the minds of Mandalore. And Man- uh, Mando says no, Din Djarin says no, so bo Clearly, has an alternate objective, and I think part of that will be to eventually ride the Mythosaur in the finale and become the new rightful ruler of Mandalore. We'll wait to see whether that plays out. And Mando takes evidence of the living waters. That was just kind of wonderful. He took it in such a small vial that had everything gone wrong and he lost that vial, he'd have to go all the way back. Like, Why not just take a bigger amount of the water, bigger volume? I don't know. It just crossed my mind when it was happening. And on the way back to Kalevala, which is where Bo-Katan's castle is, where she grew up and where she's now staying, they're attacked by a bunch of TIE Interceptors that belong to the Imperial Warlord that Bo-Katan stole her ship from. And I will say this chase sequence I thought was fantastic. I think a lot of the camera angles, the cinematography was great. I liked the way they were able to convey a lot of emotions on the characters, specifically Bo-Katan and Mando without um, them having to say a lot, or, and with both of them having their masks on, like, Bo-Katan hasn't doesn't take her helmet off at all in this episode. And I just love the moment where Mando goes down, and it was just so BA when he gets down onto the, onto the platform landing area, and he gets in this N1 starfighter, and he goes back up. So they fight off some Thai Interceptors, and bo castle on Kalevala gets destroyed. And then we cut to Coruscant. So the opening scene is just set up and now destroyed and Bo-Katan has had to follow Mando to uh, to wherever he's going, which we learn later he's taken to the Mandalorian convert that we saw at the beginning of the season 3 premiere. So I'll talk about that more at the very end, but let's talk about the sequence on Coruscant. So we're at Coruscant and we meet. We we are reintroduced to Dr. Pershing, who was the original doctor that wanted to work on Grogu with Werner Herzog's character in season one. We haven't seen him in a long time. I honestly didn't think we were ever going to see him again, and I honestly didn't mind. But we have learned that he joined the New Republic's amnesty program for ex-imperials. And he has given up his life's work of trying to create cloning tech, which he originally wanted to do because his mother's heart... Um, failed and he wasn't able to replace her organs because cloning technology wasn't available. And that's the motivation for why he wanted to create cloning technology. He was trying to convince the new Senate of the New Republic that, or I guess the free new Senate, that that that, that 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 his intentions on what he was going to do with Grogu and Moff Gideon were never, were never bad and they were always good. Now, he meets Katie O'Brien's character called, I believe her name was Elia, who... Her character was in season one. I believe she was in like one scene. And they're both from Mo- Moff Gideon's ship. So a lot of this episode is dedicating to those two characters trying to get to know each other. And we meet this kind of lavish life on Coruscant. I like that we're finally getting to see Coruscant and how the New Republic operated on Coruscant. However, the way all this was executed to me was pretty problematic for a number of reasons. Number one, I thought the acting from both of the main actors, and particularly from Katie O'Brien, who was also in Animal and the Lost Quantumania, and I wasn't really a big fan of her in that movie either, I thought it was really off, and it didn't help that the dialogue was extremely cheesy. Now, The Mandalorian isn't known for its amazing screenwriting, but I think it's always been sufficient, and it's always worked because of the tone they created and the actors who have had to deliver. I mean, come on, like, Carl Weathers, Apollo Creed himself... Is in this show. And when it comes to these two actors. I just didn't think they were enough to carry this episode. Now there's clearly a lot they're trying to explore thematically with this episode. And it actually takes this back to the beginning of how Star Wars started. Which was a lot of... I would say almost, I guess you could say... Which was a bit metaphorical. Not metaphorical. But a bit of exploration into kind of almost symbolizing the fallout of World War II. And that's kind of how... A lot of George Lucas's idea ideas for the Empire and stormtroopers, how that began, was a lot of how a lot of inspiration from the real life event of World War Two, and there was a bit of that here, with how you know people on, I guess in this case the opposing side because we're dealing with the Empire, how how they you know what was actually their place in it and how have they come out of it. There was a bit of exploration in there, but again, I just thought the issue was that. The acting wasn't there. I thought the writing of the dialogue wasn't quite there. And I didn't feel we were given really enough time with moments that actually mattered. And when it comes to Pershing's life on Coruscant, he wants to make a change, but cloning is restricted by Coruscant laws. And he has to, he does kind of a job of just throwing out Imperial trash, but he realizes that that could actually be used to help them. And the other officer, played by Katie O'Brien, convinces Dr. Pershing to go do this public transport and go to this, this, you know, yard where they've thrown out all the Imperial stuff, which they're not supposed to leave their dedicated sector, and get all the equipment he needs and find a mobile workstation, mobile lab, for him to continue his research, because cloning can be used to help the New Republic. And clearly there was something else going on with this other officer. Now I will say, some of my favorite scenes in the episode were actually the moments with Dr. Versham where he kind of talked to the droid who was controlling the Amnesty program, and... You could really feel what's happening with him with every line of dialogue when they would ask him and the pauses he would take, the moments where his, he would flinch a bit, where he would, you know, you know he, would, he, would, um, he would kind of check his hearing a bit because of what happened in season two when I believe when um, Gina Carano's character Kara uh, Dune shot him near that area. And I liked that again, that was still prevalent, you know, there is consequences here. But I felt like there wasn't enough of that and too much of just the other officer convincing him that he should go after his work even when it would probably get him in trouble. So they go, they find the Imperial Star Destroyer. It's inside. And inside, in a very conveniently close room, Dr. Pershing finds all the equipment he meet, he needs. I thought that was slightly unrealistic and I definitely didn't notice it. But, you know, it's not that bad. But then he gets backstabbed by the other officer. Absolutely shocking. And... The way this happened... I thought was really goofy... About how they came out... And then... You kind of see these other... Commanders... For I don't know what... Like it's the New Republic... And then you just see her... With like... Absolutely no emotion on her face... Taking the case... And walking in... It almost felt like... They were trying to convey... That she felt a little bad... Because she actually... Grew a connection with them And they try to convey this... At the end as well... But they... Kind of seem like... It's a false thing... To just so make sure... That she can erase his memories... But... It's not 100% clear, and I don't think they did a very good job of conveying exactly what the other officer was feeling. So, the officer, so pretty much, Dr. Pershing has taken to... By the way, we meet Amon Kilomari, who's an who's a Admiral Akbar species. And again, I thought, again, all the voice performances in this episode were so goofy. And I almost thought they went off the tone of the show That from the first, second episode specifically that I actually really liked. But anyways, you know, I'm sure they'll get back to it next episode. And it isn't for mind-wiping specifically. It's not the mind flare that was described earlier in the episode. But it is once, for some reason, all the doctors allow this other officer, who herself is an ex-Imperial, they allow them all to leave, all the doctors leave, and allow her to stay in there on her own. And just her saying, he's a friend, I'd like to see this. Was enough to convince the doctors that she wouldn't do anything harmful. And she ends up tur- turning the mind wipe dial all the way up to 11, and it suggested that his mind's been wiped. Likely to, she's likely an inside woman for Moff Gideon to escape and get rid of any evidence, and that evidence was, of course, in Dr. Pershing's mind, what Moff Gideon was trying to do with cloning technology, and I still think that it will be eventually tied into Palpatine. And I don't, want that, the, that, I don't want that to be the direction the show goes in, just to kind of make up for the lackluster explanations of the sequel trilogy. But I really do think that's where they're going, because there is nothing on my mind that could possibly have any ties to cloning that they've been hinting at, other than Palpatine. And it's not the direction I would take the show in whatsoever, but I do think we will eventually get there, and this is a further hint at that. And I'm curious to see whether Officer Elia will have any other will have any other appearances in this show, and how Moff Gideon will come back into the picture. Because once again, Moff Gideon, he is in so less of this show. Like, when it comes to season two, like, in season one, he doesn't appear until the end of the penultimate episode. In season two, he appears, like, zero times in the first four episodes, then appears, like, one scene per episode the next few episodes. And I've been really underwhelmed by the lack of use of Giancarlo Esposito. And I am just begging that this se- I was begging this season would finally give him the time to shine, but there has been no sign of him in this entire season or in any of the trailers. So I really hope we get to see him soon. I'm a big fan of him, especially in Breaking Bad and Better Call Saul. And I have been waiting for this show to use him better, and I just don't think we're going to get that this season. Which I think is disappointing. So that overall Coruscant storyline, I understood what they were trying to do. I understood what they were getting at, but I didn't think it was executed well enough. And I even thought the conveying of the characters emotions was a little weak and I thought the performances were really off and it really hurt their attempt but I liked the attempt to show the aftermath of an imperial of an imperial life once they've redeemed themselves but also how sinister they could still be I liked that but I don't think they hit the nail on the head with how to execute that but coming back to Mando and Bo-Katan they go to the new watch hideout and Mando has been redeemed he shows her the waters. And even then, I thought it was a bit too easy and quick, how quickly she just let Mando off. But then we get a very interesting new development that I was not expecting. I actually think will create a lot of interesting drama going forward to the season, and that is that Bo-Katan herself, because she bathed in the living waters, has also been accepted back to be a child of the Watch. And they have their whole ritual, and the episode really ends on that lingering question that will Bo-Katan stay with Mando, and stay with the Watch, and learn her ways, I do think she will, but not simply because she wants to, I think it will really, I think this is really a really way of Bo-Katan earning the trust of these Mandalorians, so that eventually she can have them be under her rule when she goes back to be um, the Queen of Mandalore, the leader of Mandalore. Which I do think will happen at the end of the season. I don't think it will be Mando who picks up that throne. I do think that, that, that could be where the show ends up. But I don't think it's what his character really needs right now. And I do think it will eventually lead to Bo-Katan being the leader of Mandalore. And maybe causing some conflict going into season 4. So I expected that Bo-Katan would be the villain of this season. But it does seem like that will be for next season. And this season instead will be her slowly winning over the Mandalorians. ...that she now has access to by being a child of the watch... ...because she herself bathed in the living water. So Mando has been redeemed. The first arc of this season, again, another thing they're taking from Andor... ...about the redemption of Mando after he took his helmet off... ...has been complete. And now I'm really curious where the rest of the season is going. Because really all the marketing... ...while they haven't all shown just clips from the first three episodes... ...they've only teased plot elements that have now already been resolved... So I'm assuming Moff Gideon might actually come into the play a lot quicker than I was expecting from the trailers. And I hope we push forward with a big new plot that, again, was as focused as these first first two and a half episodes were, at least, with Mando, that I actually really appreciated. But I do hope we have better quality episodes than this and episode three. I think episode two was a nice kind of middle episode in between these two a bit underwhelming episodes. But I hope they keep up that tone and that intensity. And yeah. I over, and also hope they, they keep up the look of... Whenever, whenever Mando and Avokatana uh, are on screen... I almost felt like the show had a completely different directorial style. Because when we were on Coruscant... I felt like the look of Coruscant looked much worse than in Andor. And that's probably because they're using the volume and Andor was a lot of practical effects. Not fully with Coruscant because you can't really recreate all of that. But it looks much better than this. Now this episode was actually directed by Lee Isaac Chung. Who, if you don't know, directed Oscar-nominated movie... Minari, and I love that movie. I thought it was fantastic, and I don't, it was honestly I think that year my actual pick to win Best Picture. That's the movie I hope would I I I hoped was gonna win. It unfortunately didn't. But I also was a bit disappointed by what he turned in with this episode. I expected much more, and I was so excited to hear that he was doing Star Wars because it doesn't really matter to me if you've never done something this big. A great filmmaker is a great filmmaker, and I really was so excited to see his directorial ep- efforts this episode the season, and I really hope we have at least another episode of him doing a proper Mandalorian episode, and I think he will knock it out of the park if he's given better material from a script perspective to work with. Thank you guys so much for listening to this breakdown, and I'll catch you all next time. Bye-bye.